Let's uh, bring it back. All right. So the conversation, the question was, what are the core components of trust? Um, I'd love to just take a moment to hear some of the things that came up. Raise a hand, shout something out. What, what were some of the common denominators in your groups? Someone that's caring, yep. A balance. Oh, yes. Kind of like equal weight being carried. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh-huh, Scott. Honesty. Ooh, willing to say the hard truths. Yes. Uh-huh, Danielle? Approachable. Yep, that makes sense. Um, I know in our group we also talked about safety, like a sense of the person makes you feel safe. Um, what else? Any, any others that we're missing? People that are honest, yeah, yep. All right, well, um, this question I posed to you has actually been the topic of a lot of research and debate in the academic world over the last 30 or 40 years because researchers and academics in fields like psychology, organizational management, um, international relations, they all understand them, that it's important to get a handle in some way on this elusive thing we call trust. And so after decades of a lot of multidisciplinary research by like academics in some of these fields, um, there's been a lot of back and forth about how do we actually define trust? What does it actually include? And then in 2007, a researcher named uh, Dr. Sean Burke at the University of Florida, she published her analysis, which was in a way kind of like a summary of a lot of the different research that have been done thus far, a lot of the different ways of defining trust or components of trust that have been named. Um, and she kind of was able to kind of summarize and analyze these all um, in a way that kind of seemed to settle the debate. Like for at least the academics in this field, they all felt like, oh yeah, I think that's, that's a pretty good analysis, a pretty good summary of what we're saying when we talk about trust. Um, and academics for the last like 15 years have tended to build their understanding of what trust is and how it works and how we cultivate it on her formula. So this is what she says. Dr. Burke describes trust being made up of what she calls three pillars. And the three pillars are these. And I think you guys will recognize potentially some of the things you've been talking about. So they, they frame it, they use the word ability or competency. Um, so this is, well, I'll just name what they are and then I'll break them apart. And then integrity, and then what they call benevolence, okay? So when they talk about competency or ability, this is about does someone actually have the capacity to do the thing you're working on together? Um, you might think I'm a lovely person, like I might be a great friend. It probably wouldn't be wise for you to trust me to build your house, because that's not something I actually have real competency in, right? So the point is, it's hard to trust someone to share a task with you, even like forming a, a friendship, if they don't actually have skills that, that could be useful in that task. Um, and then there's integrity. 
also called honesty. So I heard that a couple times. That's also one of the words that um, sometimes gets subbed in for integrity. Does the person demonstrate over time that not only do they have some skills or competency you can trust in, but they're honest, they're reliable? Do they have a track record of actually following through, of showing up when they say they're going to show up? Can you believe what they say to the, that, is, that it's accurate to the best of this person's knowledge? Or do you have a sense you might not be getting the full story from them? And then there's the third one, which I think is kind of the most interesting, that th they call it benevolence. I think it's interesting coming from this world of management and psychology, this like secular sphere. Um, but it speaks to how a person is concerned with the well-being of others, right? In fact, the word benevolent, which we talked about our benevolence fund, right, uh, at Haven, that actually comes from two Latin words, which like, specifically translate into wishing well. You wish well for another person. That's what benevolence actually kind of means. Um, so does someone you know, want the best for others? Are they kind? Are they thoughtful? Are they caring? This is that, you know, do they feel safe? Um, or do they seem to be mostly, you know, kind of self-concerned? So according to Dr. Burke and others in her academic community, these three pillars are like the core components, if we had to break it down, um, of, of what it means to experience trust, that we, we can trust in someone's competency, their integrity, their benevolence. Well, I start with this conversation because this is the second teaching in this series I'm calling Let's Collab. And it's a series that's inviting us to consider together some of this element, that um, the elements we might focus on as we continue to grow in collaboration this year, like we named as one of our priorities for this year, is just growing and how do we work better together collaboratively in building this thing called Haven and in building our shared lives together. So two weeks ago, I started the series by inviting us to consider a potential first step in that process of growing in collaboration, which I called getting humble, recognizing our need for one another, trying to lay down places of power, um, being an important beginning in collaborating. And I think this work of building trust we've been talking about might be the next step in the process. Um, so we need trust in one another if we're going to collaborate well. We need to feel safe while we're doing so. So how do we go about building that trust, particularly with folks who may share a variety of life experiences, cultural backgrounds, personal needs, and so on? I think it's an ongoing, complicated work. It's not going to be done in one morning. But I do think that there are insights we can consider together, um, not only from the academic world like we've looked at, but also from our sacred texts, as well as the wisdom of our own experiences that we can kind of all bring together to direct our efforts. So that's what I hope to explore a bit of today. So Jesus was not particularly interested in being a solo act. He was seeking collaborators, right? He wanted folks to do the stuff with him. He was quite capable, uniquely so, on his own, but he didn't want to do it alone. So how did he build trust with the folks he collaborated with? No doubt a lot of you are probably familiar with some of the stories in the Gospels of Jesus calling his first disciples into collaboration. 
And the way some of the gospel writers describe that, it's like Jesus just walks up to these total strangers, like a few fishermen on the side of a lake, and says, hey, follow me. And immediately they drop their nets and they just go. And they like jump in, no questions asked. It seems like blind faith to me. It can't, it feels honestly kind of incomprehensible. But not all the gospel writers actually tell the story that way. Whereas Mark and Matthew pretty much present things just like I described, Luke actually arrange his, arranges his account a bit differently. He takes a little more time. He varies the order of events a bit. He narrows the focus from a group of fishermen to kind of paying particular attention to Jesus' relations with one of them. Simon, who would eventually be known as Peter. So while there are a number of ways we could interpret why there are these differences in Luke, today I thought it might be interesting to read the familiar story again, but through this lens of trust building, looking at how Jesus was encountering Simon and Peter as they were becoming collaborators, and as we do Consider the ways he may have been operating to build trust with Simon. Perhaps considering where we might see elements of ability, competency, integrity, benevolence appearing, or whatever, whatever other components of trust you resonate with. So we're going to begin the story at the end of chapter 4 in Luke. The setup here is that Jesus has just returned from his time in the desert after his baptism. And from there, he began preaching in the synagogues. And in his home synagogue in Nazareth, folks felt infuriated by this prophet preaching to his hometown and drove him away. And so he made his way to the town of Capernaum, which is about 20 miles from his hometown of Nazareth. It's a coastal town. It's on the Sea of Galilee. And so after preaching in their synagogue where he spectacularly like cast a demon out in the middle of the synagogue after his sermon, uh, we pick up the story of what happened later that day. Okay, so that's where we're going to pick it up. After Jesus left the synagogue, he entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he stood over her, commanded the fever, and it left her. Immediately, she got up and began to serve them. As the sun was setting, all those who had any relatives sick with various diseases brought them to Jesus, and he placed his hands on every one of them and healed them. Demons also came out of many, crying out, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. Now we're skipping forward just a few verses to the beginning of chapter 5. Now Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is another name for the Sea of Galilee, and the crowd was pressing around him to hear the word of God. He saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and he asked him to put out a little way from the shore. And then Jesus sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and lower your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we have worked hard all night and caught nothing. But at your word, I will lower the nets. And when they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets started to tear. 
So they motioned to their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they were both about to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For Peter and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, Zebedee's sons, who were Simon's business partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. So when they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and they followed him. Okay. So we have this familiar story, a story about how Jesus and Simon Peter first became collaborators. Okay, but what I think is interesting about how Luke tells the story is by the time Peter and his friends leave their nets and boats to follow Jesus, like a number of things have actually taken place. Things that might explain how they were actually able to do that. It seems like at least a degree of trust has been built. So how did Jesus potentially model building trust? I'm just going to draw our attention to a few things I see that might be relevant for us in that. And just FYI, I'm going to mostly refer to Simon Peter as Simon here, um, because in this part of the story, that's what he's called. Though, yes, to understand, it's, it's, this is the same person that will later be known as Peter. Okay. So the first thing we notice is that Jesus gets personal with Simon. He gets personal. So I don't know about you, but usually when I've read this story or heard it preached, the story picks up at the scene at the water, right? But as you can see from what we just read, the way Luke tells the story, the story of Jesus and Simon Peter actually starts before Jesus comes to the lake. Before Jesus ever was a guest in Simon's boat, he was a guest in Simon's house. Simon was the one who hosted Jesus for dinner right after Jesus had amazed folks in the local synagogue, preaching and casting out a demon. And not only did Jesus come over for dinner, but while he was there, he healed Simon's sick mother-in-law. And, and then a whole bunch of other people in their town came to the party and got healed. And from these short verses, we learn not only was Simon Peter, hello, a married man, something we rarely ever consider in a lot of our conversations about him and his ministry. But we see that from the beginning of this connection, Jesus was connecting with this intimate, personal part of Simon Peter's life. Jesus was connecting with his home life, with his family life, right? Jesus was literally there in Simon's home, showing up, attending to the personal intimate needs in Simon Peter's life, caring for his family members. He was benevolent to Simon and his family from the beginning. And hanging out in people's homes, that's not a one-off thing for Jesus, right? It's clearly something he does with many of the folks he's building relationships with. When Jesus reaches out to a tax collector named Levi, then that night he's eating dinner at his home, much to the chagrin of like a lot of the religious people around them. Same thing happens when he meets another tax collector named Zacchaeus. He invites himself over to dine at his house that night. Significant encounters happen with his close friends Mary and Martha when he's in their home, just kind of in the midst of their day-to-day -day sisterly dynamics. Jesus isn't strictly business with his collaborators. He gets personal most often embodied by sharing meals with people. 
And the model of connecting and building trust in those intimate spaces was something people like Simon Peter and the other leaders in the early church carried forward. Their Sunday gatherings usually took place in homes where they shared meals, they sang songs, they shared the teachings and stories of Jesus, they prayed together. It was a core part of the, dyna the dynamic, being involved in one another's personal lives and what happened in their homes, in their families, with their partners. They could live into benevolence and integrity that way regularly. Second thing I noticed Jesus doing as he's building trust with Simon Peter is this. Jesus partners with Simon. He partners with him. Jesus invites Simon to collaborate on a task with him, the task of helping the gathering crowd actually hear his teaching. Likely the reason Jesus chose to stand in a boat um, a bit out on the water to preach was both like pragmatic and also acoustic. Like pragmatically, just there visually, it gives some natural distance between Jesus and the crowd so everyone can see him. And also, like, probably he appreciated having a little space himself. Um, but it also was probably acoustically helpful, as Jesus' voice would have naturally bounced off the water and towards the crowd, amplifying it. It was like Jesus' spontaneous waterside amphitheater. Um, but Jesus couldn't create that amphitheater alone. He needed a collaborator who had unique skills and tools. So Jesus asked Simon if he could use the boat and the, the skills to, to man it. And Simon apparently consented. Jesus and Simon partnered together in a distinct task, each of them getting the opportunity to offer what they had to the project. They each had unique competencies to contribute. Jesus brought the words to be shared, the people that needed to hear them. Simon Peter brought the means. Both skill sets had dignity and usefulness. Again, this seems to be a regular part of Jesus's MO, reaching out to folks, finding moments of collaboration in these like small, distinct tasks, honoring the contributions of others, incorporating them into acts of collaboration. So he asks a woman who has a bucket by a well in Samaria for a drink of water. He works with a boy who has five loaves of bread and two fishes to feed a multitude. He clearly expects his followers that he's training to operate in similar ways. When he sends them out to practice ministering to others, he sends them out in pairs. He wants them to collaborate on these tasks and also to partner with the folks they meet along the way, accepting hospitality when it's offered, allowing that hospitality to be a place of connection and contribute towards building trust with one another. And that finally brings me to the third way I see Jesus interacting with Simon that probably built trust. Jesus honors Simon's cultural experience. He honors his cultural experience. While relationship and likely some trust are being built between Jesus and Simon Peter, from the moment uh, Jesus enters the living room in Simon's house, it's not the miraculous healings in Simon's home it's not hearing his amazing authoritative preaching that causes Simon to drop to his knees. It's the miracle that takes place in Simon's own cultural language. When Jesus enters his world, 
and blesses him beyond what he can imagine there. Simon is moved to worship and, yes, to trust and follow Jesus when Jesus goes fishing with Simon. Now, Jesus isn't a fisherman. I'm guessing when he asked Simon Peter to go fishing again after Simon had just had a frustrating night on the water, not caught anything, after he'd already cleaned his nets and hung around to help Jesus' little amplification project, Simon very well may have felt a bit annoyed being asked to go back on the water. This carpenter might have chops as a teacher and a healer, but what does he know about fishing? Still, out of respect for the guy who just healed his wife's mom, and maybe to save face in front of the crowds, he humors him, he takes him fishing. And he is stunned when this is where Jesus' divinity is truly revealed. The catch is beyond anything any of them have experienced. They are blessed in their area of competence. They receive more than they ever could have done on their own. It doesn't just blow Simon Peter away. His partners, James and John, are stunned too. They've never seen anything like it. They know this can only be a manifestation of God. And Simon Peter's immediately overcome. He falls at Jesus' feet. He's urging him to get away because Simon feels so convicted. He's sinful, unworthy of sharing space with someone so close to God. But Jesus doesn't see Simon that way. He sees capacity. He sees promise. He sees potential in Simon Peter. And he speaks to him of that by, again, speaking the language of Simon's cultural experience. From now on, you will be catching people. Jesus isn't asking Simon to become a rabbi. He's not asking him to become a carpenter to follow him. He's inviting, he's inhabiting Simon's culture as a fisherman and honoring it and inviting him as a fisherman into the collaborative project he's cultivating. And in the same way as we build trust, I think we also have the opportunity to honor one another's cultural experiences. That might mean inviting one another's professional identities into our collaboration. I think we're also gifted to have this like amazing numbers CPA person also be our treasurer as Haven, right? He brings a unique skill set, a unique competency to our community, and we are so blessed by it. Um, it also might mean learning about and engaging with others' interests in entertainment, in media, in food. It might be about style of communication, even honoring the reality that what folks actually need to build trust, to feel benevolence, to feel integrity, can actually be very personal. It can also be cultural. And we may need to listen and be willing to connect in new ways to honor our collaborative partners if their needs for trust are different than our own. So Dr. Jeannie Bratt and Dr. Tyree Mitchell are two more recent academic researchers in the area of trust. Welcome, Vanessa. Folks who've built their work upon Dr. Burks, who we spoke of before. And the specific area of trust that Brett and Mitchell have been researching is how culture impacts the capacity to trust. 
And so in conversations with managers around the globe, they found that different leaders in different parts of the world approached building trust in different ways. And so some folks in North America and Northern Europe are quick to trust, assuming the partner is competent until proven otherwise. Um, but other managers in places like Latin America or Southeast Asia may be slower to trust in a business relationship and need time socializing with folks outside of work before trust can be built. They need to cultivate a sense of the person's benevolence, you could say, of their integrity before they're willing to work together in, in the areas of business. Others in East Asia might want to vet the, per the business partner's competence, learning about their reputation from others who've done business with them that they trust. The point is, there's not one right way to build trust, but we need to honor one another's needs and be willing to learn and adapt to them. So what does all this mean for Haven? I think there's lots of applications. I think in the day-to-day -day of cultivating spiritual community, there are many opportunities for getting personal, for partnering on tasks together. That's a lot of what we're doing here on a Sunday, um, for honoring one another's cultural experiences. All of these can be components of building the pillars of trust with one another, just as they were for Jesus and his collaborators. But I'm going to end with a pitch uh, for one particular practice that I think we can continue to grow in as a community. We've, we've worked on it, we've been working on it, and I would love to collaborate with any of you who are interested in continuing to grow it. And some of us in this community have in the past or are currently engaged in some sort of small community group outside of Sunday time with Haven. Cultivating community groups has been something we've been working on and iterating in different ways through the years, sometimes more fruitfully than others, there are challenges for our quirky little community, distance being a big one. A lot of folks are coming from far away. That can make finding rhythms of gathering outside of these few Sundays a month challenging. And of course, folks have busy lives, conflicting schedules, etc. But for those of us who have, despite all that, found ways to participate in some sort of groups, gatherings outside beyond what we can do here on Sunday, um, whether that's groups that have gone on for years, groups that are just time bound for a few months, I think we have found in those smaller spaces, sometimes within one another's homes, that they can help. They can help us get personal. They can help us work together. They can help us enter one another's cultural experiences in ways that are different than what we can do in a big group. And so as we look to a new season coming, I just want to ask you to consider, invite you, if you're not currently a part of an ongoing community group, um, what is there a kind of group you might be interested in or available for this fall? Um, a group that meets, would it be a group that meets in someone's home? Uh, it could be an online group. I mean, we already talked about um, the podcast group will be a Zoom group. There's all kinds of um, ways we can do this. But um, is there a topic or theme you might be interested in exploring with others? Is there an ability or a competency you have to bring towards cultivating that space? Might you be open to partnering with someone and facilitating um, or hosting a space? How can we as a community move towards having regular opportunities for most, if not all of us, 
whoever would like to be um, interacting with a consistent group of people, even beyond the Sunday experience. And as that happens, how might the trust we build in those settings contribute to this larger thing we're trying to collaborate on together here? Now, I'm not here coming with a proposal, and here's the set of groups for you to sign up with today. <laughs> I'm more hoping we might create that together. So if you have an idea for a group you'd like to see happen this fall, I'd love to hear about it. Um, we can discern together, perhaps with others, about how it might become a reality. Um, and in all of this, I hope we can continue to grow in building trust with one another that multiplies exponentially just as it did with the one we follow. Amen. All right. We're going to, let me just pray for us real quick, and then we'll take a little bit longer for converse, a little bit more conversation, and then we'll go move into our, um, our final worship. So I uh, let me pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are one who understands our need for trust and who lived out, um, who embodied cultivating it, who embodied um, all the things we've spoken of, getting personal, finding tasks to collaborate with, speaking cultural languages. And we ask that you, as we continue to do the work of following you alongside one another, and trying to cultivate safe, diverse, Jesus-centered space, uh, we'd be growing in trust with one another, that we would find ourselves entrusting ourselves uh, to each other in ways that bring life, hope, freedom. We experience the joys of relationships with benevolence, with consistency, with care. Amen. All right, so here are a few things you can consider. Um, does Dr. Burke's formula for trustworthiness, ability, integrity, and benevolence match your own experience of trust? Why or why not? Um, or how have the practices Jesus engaged in building trust with Simon Peter um, shown up in your own relationships? Or how have you found small groups helpful for building trust? What kind of groups do you imagine or hope for in Haven going forward? So those are all things we could talk about or whatever else feels relevant to you. We'll take about 10 minutes, uh, maybe a few, yeah, eight to 10 minutes, and then we'll um, come back for worship.